This episode is brought to you by the UPS store at Hudson Corners, 2123 Old Spartanburg Road in Greer, South Carolina. Over the past couple of years of producing this podcast, the folks there have been my go-to for all my printing, shipping, scanning, copying, and mailbox services. From mailing a postcard to binding a 750-page police file to scanning a 2,000-page trial transcript, no job was too big or small for the folks there. If you stop by, mention murder, etc., and you'll get 10% off select wide format printing. Thanks to the UPS store at 2123 Old Spartanburg Road for all the help and your support of Murder Etc. Now, here's episode 27, Amazing Grace. On any given day in Greenville, South Carolina, you can drive down the road and see small cars marked on the side to let you know there are 15-year-olds behind the wheel learning to drive. More often than not, There's a law enforcement officer moonlighting in the passenger seat, guiding the teenagers, teaching them the ins and outs and intricacies of driving a car on South Carolina roads. The off-duty cops have one goal, to put safe drivers on the road. The teenagers have a goal too. Freedom, freedom to roam, freedom to go places without somebody constantly watching them. Freedom at 15 years old or freedom as they understand it, nearly all of them having no reason to know. When they were born, there was a man who had no freedom to roam, no freedom to go anywhere without somebody watching him. And even if he got that freedom, there was something else he didn't have. And I never had had a driver's license before. By now you know, Charles Wakefield Jr. eventually, after 35 years behind bars, got out of prison. People don't realize that if you detach from society for 35 years, your imagery of what life is like and the reality of what it really is like is totally different. When he finally looked out at the road ahead of him, he finally understood why the path from prison wasn't a one-way street. I used to always say, man, why these guys keep coming back? They're getting out of prison, but they keep coming right back. And then when I got out, I said, wow. I see why they keep coming back. It just seemed like everything is geared towards you not being successful. The new world around him wasn't just microwaves, cell phones, the internet, the hundreds of channels of nothing on TV. Those were things he had time to figure out. Wakefield had been locked up since he was 21 years old. He learned how to survive prison. And now he had to learn how to survive freedom. Working for a temp service for $7.25 an hour, supplementing your food by going to the food bank. Then they're giving you food that's not really good for you because it's old food, a bunch of sugar, a bunch of stuff that you really shouldn't be eating. In those first years after getting out, he remembers people taking advantage of him, hiring him to work and then not paying him, giving him a place to stay and then stealing from him. He lived a life of freedom, interrupted. Interrupted by not even having what the vast majority of 15-year-old kids had. I knew that I had to get them because any success that I would have was predicated on getting them driver's license. The first step for any 15-year-old kid is to pass the written exam, to get a beginner's permit. Most of those teenagers have a parent with a car or enough money to pay an off-duty cop to help the kid practice. Wakefield had none of those things. He had 
just enough change to call gas money. If I got my uh, permit and I would pay this lady, I would give her gas money so that I could practice in her car. But under the law, anyone with a beginner's permit couldn't be on the roads without another licensed driver in the car. I was living in a country in a rural area. I went out to the highway and I measured the road, how wide the road was, and I made a driving course in the woods. Imagine a man who can't even comprehend the century he's living in, waiting for the traffic to pass, and then carefully measuring out a country highway so he could cut an exact path to freedom through the Carolina countryside. I would drive up the hill, parallel park, then I would back all the way back down the hill and do the three-point turn. Up and down the hill, over the hill and through the woods, for six months, just so he could get the same taste of the same freedom of a South Carolina 15-year-old. The first time that uh, I went to try to get for my driver's license, I passed the test. That's how I ended up with the driver's license. How old were you? 53. Never had a driver's license. How 53? 53 or 15, the freedom of the road is sweet. For a 15-year-old, it's rolling up to school on your own or hitting Waffle House after a game without your parents sitting in the next booth. For a 53-year-old who hadn't never pumped unleaded gasoline, freedom meant something else. That was a key moment when I got the driver's license. That moment was a key moment in my surviving getting out of prison. For a 15-year-old, that moment is the result of careful study and lots of practice. For Charles Wakefield Jr., that moment was all the study and all the practice and hope, the kind of hope some people might call faith. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder, Etc. Charles Wakefield Jr. was as good as dead. That's when he announced the sentence. Charles Wakefield, I confine you to the South Carolina Department of Corrections to be held in confinement. And there you are to be electrocuted. May God have mercy on your soul. He believed it. His family believed it. My mom was just saying, they're going to kill my boy. They're going to kill my boy. It was 1976, barely a year after Rufus and Frank Looper died. And to Wakefield's family, Wakefield was just as dead as the Loopers because the state of South Carolina was planning to kill him. It scared me a lot. I just couldn't imagine my brother taken away from me. Vanessa was Wakefield's little sister, a confused and angry child in a neighborhood that she remembers being just as confused and angry. My friend would always say, my mom said, there's no way he could have done that. There's no way he could have done that, you know. That was just general consensus of people in the neighborhood. They, they just knew what kind of person he was. They knew him as a friendly person, so they couldn't believe it either. Wakefield ended up behind the wall at CCI, the Central Correctional Institution, where the death house was. Sometimes I would pray all day. Sometimes I would pray almost all night asking God to help me. The only time that I had peace and rest was when I was sleeping. And I remember I would fall asleep for a couple of hours, and then I would wake up 
to realize I was still there. And I was still sitting in front of the, the deaf house, looking at the deaf house. At home, his old man, Charles Wakefield Sr., the man who had carried his son to the local liquor houses, he didn't have his wingman anymore. And so, without a son to hold on to, he held tighter to a bottle. My dad was a drinker, and after that, he seemed to drink more. He took it really hard. He felt like he should have been able to do something to protect him more. And I think it hurt him that he, he was dying and knowing that he would never see Charles outside of the prison walls. And his little sister, Vanessa, made herself a promise. Even if her father couldn't, she would stand beside Charles. I always believed in him, and I knew that there was no way my brother could have done those things that they said he did. I knew him, and I felt like I owed it to him to help him as much as I could. I owed it to my parents, and they felt like they had lost him. For two years, Wakefield looked at the death house and imagined himself dying inside. The United States Supreme Court stopped that from happening when it knocked down South Carolina's death penalty law. Wakefield ended up with a life sentence. And so, instead of sitting up all night praying on how to avoid his execution, he sat up all night praying on how to fix his life. Those prayers began with pride. Not in himself, but in the Wakefield name. My family, they were a poor family. I still had a responsibility to act like somebody. The family that I came from, I still had to try to act like somebody and to do some good things. Who was he right then? He was an uneducated 20-something kid in prison on a life sentence for a crime he would never admit to committing. But who ever was going to believe him? He hadn't had a lick of education since he was in middle school. I had dropped out of high school in the eighth grade, and then I started going to school. And I understood that in order for me to, to fight the case, I had to educate myself. Today, Wakefield has a scrapbook of accomplishments. His high school education, his advanced education in theology and horticulture. The one thing he doesn't have, the one thing he never had, was a disciplinary write-up in prison. He credits that to the people around him. People who saw him as he saw himself as a man who didn't belong in prison. They saw a worth in me. They saw where I was trying to better myself as a man. I was in prison for 35 years and didn't get a disciplinary. Back home in Greenville, something happened. Something that had never happened before. I used to think about my father a lot, and he loved his son. Wakefield's father, who drowned himself in booze when he lost his son to prison, became something he'd never showed himself to be before. He was proud of his son. It just seemed like the level of respect that he had for me, it changed. My son is trying to better himself, and my son is doing this, and my son is doing that, and my son is doing that. And I was in prison. It didn't matter that Charles Wakefield Jr. was in prison. His father was proud. It's hard to quantify just how much a father's pride can fuel a son. It's hard to understand how a decade could pass with Wakefield gone, while Greenville and the rest of the Wakefield family moved on 
Rodney McKinney grew up in Malden, South Carolina. He was just so mild-mannered. I didn't, didn't see that in him. McKinney had maybe two speeding tickets in his life. He didn't know anything about prisons or murders. Wow, you just I just never knew this kind of stuff existed. McKinney just knew he had worked at Long John Silver's with a pretty girl named Vanessa, that they'd gotten married, and she told him she had a brother who was doing life for the murder of a Greenville County cop. And part of Rodney marrying the love of his life was driving his mother-in-law down to the parole board to beg for her son's release, and then trying to be strong for all of them when the parole board said no. Every time, man, to get mother-in-law in the car, hopes up so high. This is the time. This is the time we need to go and get out. With the hopes up so high and, and we'll be denied. It wasn't just hard on his mother-in-law. It was hard on his marriage with Vanessa. It was just like a constant consoling her, man. And that took a toll on the marriage for, for a while because she was so, so convinced that, that Charles did not do this. Rodney wanted to support his wife, but he had no reason to believe Charles Wakefield Jr. was innocent. And then he met him. And Rodney felt something different. So I was just thought he would just be this rough around the edges type guy. Well, I didn't see that, man. That was amazing to see somebody that mild-mannered. It seemed no one who met Wakefield in prison disagreed. Wakefield didn't like the fights that broke out on the basketball court, so he hooked up with the prison softball team. Wakefield educated himself. He climbed out of an almost complete illiteracy to write letters that touched the hearts of preachers, activists, and just about anyone who took the time to open an envelope that came from his prison cell. Wakefield might have avoided the death penalty, but that didn't stop a man named Mike Bridges from making sure Wakefield continued to endure a living hell. Mike Bridges was one of the two lead investigators in the Looper murders in 1975. By 1987, he was Greenville, South Carolina's chief of police. And it seemed among his most important goals was keeping Charles Wakefield Jr. in prison. I thought Mike may be stepping out of bounds a little bit. That is Billy Wilkins, the prosecutor who sent Wakefield to prison, talking about his decades-long friend, Mike Bridges. He got overly interested, I thought, in, 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 in seeing what he thought was justice in the case. No matter how busy or distracted Bridges got with his job as chief, if he discovered Wakefield was enjoying anything better than sheer hell in prison, he spoke up. By the early 1990s, Wakefield was very well liked in prison. The Department of Corrections called him the ideal inmate. It awarded him inmate of the year. It had started granting him furloughs, a little time out of prison to spend with his family. Those furloughs happened more than a dozen times before Chief Mike Bridges found out. And just before Wakefield was scheduled to go home for Christmas one year, Bridges talked to the newspapers and then wrote a letter of outrage to the Department of Corrections. The Department of Corrections wrote a letter of regret to Charles Wakefield, saying, because of the outrage, it had to cancel his Christmas trip. And quote, do not let your disappointment affect your attitude or what you've accomplished. And then the Department of Corrections wrote another letter to Bridges. It begins, Dear Mike, and it goes on to explain why the prison gave Wakefield the furloughs, but how, based on Bridges' concerns, the Department of Corrections was going to deny Wakefield's Christmas trip. The closing of that letter to Bridges reads, 
I wish you a very happy holiday season. Nineteen ninety-seven was the first time the South Carolina Parole Board listened to Wakefield's story and then decided to let Charles Wakefield Jr. go home. The board paroled him, and then, after Chief Mike Bridges raised hell, the board told Wakefield he had to stay in hell. Over the years, even the prosecutor, Billy Wilkins, started telling Mike Bridges he should stop going down to Columbia to protest. Once we prosecute, once the jury convicts, and once the Supreme Court and whatever other courts involved give it finality, then it's up to the administrative system, and that's the parole system. And that's when victims or family and all that can come in. I just, I, I, I told Mike, I thought it's a little beyond the pale for a police officer once you've done your job to go down. Wakefield's sister, Vanessa, remembers one of the countless parole board hearings. On my way out, Mike Bridges was giving an interview, and he was talking about how glad he was Charles didn't make it and all the negative stuff he said. I just got mad all over again. Now, I was just standing there looking at him. He didn't know who I was, and I felt like, wow, this cop is just sitting here, and he's standing here lying, no conscious at all. No conscious. But nobody ever stopped Bridges from speaking his mind. And in one case, there might have been someone who encouraged him by putting a TV camera in front of his face and letting Bridges rant about the injustice of Wakefield's release. The son of trial judge Frank Epps watched that happen in 2001. After several years of thinking, he himself would like to free the man his own father sent to the electric chair. Epps wanted it so much, he actually told his dad I told him, I said, I'd really like to get him out of jail. And then I didn't think a whole lot about it until I was watching the news when he got paroled and then they jerked it back, which really just annoyed the fool out of me. And how did that happen? Well, that happens to be a story I can tell you without having to research it. Charles Wakefield Jr. spent the end of the 70s trying to stay alive. He spent the 1980s educating himself and becoming a better man. He spent the 1990s working largely on his own, trying to get out of prison. He wrote letter after letter after letter, and he prayed and prayed and prayed. Maybe it's no surprise. Some of those letters ended up in the hands of people Wakefield would one day consider angels. This is back in 1999. Online journalism you know, almost didn't really exist at the time. Eric Gottlieb was a New York City public defender. He had placed an ad in an online prison magazine. It was called justicedenied.org. And an activist wrote him. And he wrote me a letter and said, hey, uh, you should look into this guy, Charles Wakefield's case down in South Carolina. Gottlieb didn't tell anyone he was a lawyer. Because in addition to his law degree, Gottlieb had been to film school. At the time, I, I didn't want to be the lawyer. I wanted to be the filmmaker. But putting the ring with a big idea, real life almost always still wins. Gottlieb had shortlisted some inmates that might make for a good documentary. But that's when his real life got busy and put his big idea on the back burner. Nearly two years passed. And then he heard about one of the men that had been on his shortlist. I remember coming out of the shower one morning 
I heard on the news that he had been released from prison and that his conviction had been overturned because uh, a lawyer looked into his case a little bit and talked to some of the witnesses and there was a recantation. And sure enough, he, he was released. And it was at that moment when I, I knew that if I didn't try to help Charles, that he would basically sit in prison forever, that nobody was going to do anything about it. No one would help him. So Gottlieb got back in touch with Charles Wakefield Jr. and said, by the way, I'm a lawyer. It wasn't long before the New York lawyer was on South Carolina's soil. I felt like very surprised at how open and friendly people were. I remember being at the Greenville Police Department waiting in a queue. And I remember the person at the counter sort of turned to go retrieve something. And I looked at the lady next to me and I said, wow, everyone's so friendly down here. She just laughed and said, you have no idea. Gottlieb quickly found he had chosen one of the most controversial cases in Greenville's history. He thought he would run directly into a wall of silence. I couldn't get people to shut up. I mean, they just told me stuff like they had known me for 20 years. This was the worst kept secret in Greenville that Charles did not kill the Loopers. Everyone associated with the criminal justice system at that time, whether it's for the defense bar or in law enforcement, they, they all knew exactly what had happened. Before long, Gottlieb was achieving things for Wakefield that no one ever imagined, including finding Wyatt Earp Harper and listening as Harper told him his testimony against Wakefield had been a lie. It's just that I told a lie that I did. I don't know that, man. When Wyatt recanted, he kept talking about Billy, Billy Wilkins. I'm like, who, who's Billy Wilkins? If Gottlieb was naive, it only helped him at first. Because before long, he had convinced the South Carolina Parole Board once again to let Wakefield go free. Wakefield's family couldn't have been happier. I'm going to cook him a big dinner, a big cake. This is his stepmother outside the prison after hearing the news. And let him enjoy every bit of it, every bit of it. I'm so glad he's coming home. That's when somebody put a TV camera in front of Mike Bridges. This right here is a miscarriage of justice. That somebody was me. And they let him walk out. Now Bridges and Chief Johnson are calling for a new hearing. Back in my days as a TV news reporter, I broke the story of Wakefield's release. And nearly two decades later. All right, so I've, I've never really felt comfortable asking. I forced myself to ask Wakefield about what happened next. But I'm going to ask anyway because I have to. And you know the story about how I got involved in all this. Yeah, we know that story. I had called my stepmom and I told her, I said, Mama, I made parole. I'm getting ready to come home. Found out a week later that they had took it back. How did you find out? It was in the newspapers. So you, you read it in the news? I read it in the news. And then they sent me the official letter. And uh, I was devastated. I was heartbroken. I thought that after all those years, it would finally be over. Wakefield had been through disappointments before, in 1997 with the parole board, with the Christmas furloughs, but he almost always bounced back quickly. This time was different. I struggled 
Normally when I get a setback like that, you know, I'll struggle for three or four days. Then I'll start back fighting. I struggled because I had told my mom, I said, you know what? I'm finally gonna get out. I'm finally gonna be able to try to do some things to help you. Wakefield struggled because he'd made plans to help his mom, to help his ailing dad, to finally be the son he wasn't back when he was 21 years old. And then someone came along and messed it all up. And what does Wakefield do? He turns the other cheek. I understood that a person, they, they made a decision. Again, that person was me. But they didn't make a decision based on all the facts. And it was a good lesson for me, for me too, in that you can make a decision that affects somebody else's life, but you really need to, to know the facts. Where Wakefield might have been devastated and able to understand some shoddy reporting, Gottlieb was a bundle of rage about everything happening to Wakefield. Ruth Lyles Bailey was uh, the local agent for the Department of Parole and Pardon Services at the courthouse. And when I told her that you were going to run a story that night on WYFF, she, she literally teared up and gave me a, a hug. I was outraged. I was incensed. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I was angry, and I, I, I thought, you know, this is like the you know, most tragic example of bystander apathy you can imagine. Everybody knew that he didn't do it, yet nobody felt like it was their job to do something about it. At some point after that, as Gottlieb tried to see through a blind rage, he showed up at my office with the police file and then began to talk to me over the years to come. Eric told me that he had put the files and stuff on your desk. And then he said, you know, you just kept on apologizing. In the very first episode, I told you, this story isn't about me. But for one critical moment nearly 20 years ago, I showed up as a bit part and spent the next two decades apologizing. Midway through the production of this podcast, I had one more apology to make. I'm sorry, Charles. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of years trying to uh, make this up to you. And I, uh, I hope this does. I spent a lot of time thinking about that day in 2001 and what it meant to Wakefield. And I never expected him to tell me what he thought it meant for me. I think that that day was a great learning experience for you in terms of the way that you do things, the way that you conduct your life. So gotta forgive people.
You got to forgive people. That's what he said. You got to forgive people. Relationships are hard for Charles Wakefield Jr. His mother left him in the hands of a troubled father. His city and its leaders sent him to death row, where Wakefield eventually lost the most important connections he'd had with his wife and daughter. After that, the vast majority of people he knew were convicts. And yet, there were two people he met while he was still behind bars. We're coming up on a 20-year anniversary of knowing Charles, which has been a blessing to us. Laird Carlson, a retired attorney and bluegrass musician, and his wife, Claudia Whitman, an artist and advocate for wrongfully convicted prisoners. They live in Colorado, and yet they're Wakefield's closest friends. There's something about him that you know he's telling the truth. You know that he would be there and stand by you to the very last minute. He's just, he's a true friend and a gentleman and a person of great intelligence and character. I mean, he's amazing. This is somebody who was harmed by society. And that always rings a bell. That friendship was born out of adversity. They've been devoted and they've been adamant about ensuring that I'm successful. Claudia and Laird met Wakefield not long before Eric Gottlieb did. And Wakefield was sure that Claudia, who has personally helped five men get out of prison, would make quick work of his case. I've gathered so much information and everything. If you would just look into this case, I think you could have me freed in no time. And I was probably naive enough then to think, oh, well, maybe if I start working on this, I really can get an innocent person out of prison. So 13 years later. (laughs) Wakefield was convinced with all he knew, all Gottlieb knew, and all that Laird and Claudia could do, freedom was just around the corner. He thought that, you know, just a couple of years with all the facts involved, Claudia would have him out and bang. Instead, years passed, and then more passed. Claudia and Laird lived every moment, from the year 2000 until now, helping Wakefield. Through the hope, the search for new information, and every disappointment, when the parole board would again say, No. Most times, Wakefield would keep his chin up and shoulders back. But Claudia, at times, saw a man nearly broken. It was uh, horrendous. And, you know, and I was there with him when they come out and lead him away in shackles. And you could actually, very often, we'd be sitting there waiting in that side room to hear what the parole board decided. And you could hear them laughing in there. And then someone would come in and say, you've been denied. Usually he just maintained his calm and didn't show any emotion. 
he really fell apart when they came and grabbed him and took him away. And I remember just watching him with the chains on and watching his back and his whole stature was so diminished and so beaten down. It was just horrible. After 2001, when the parole board for a second time reversed its decision, what seemed to be the last best hope, a hearing in front of a judge asking for a new trial based on Wyatt Earp Harper's admission, he lied on the stand. Back in 2001, Gottlieb was clueless about what he was getting into. I had never heard of Billy Wilkins. He's not a household name where I come from. Mike Bridges, Jim Christopher, never heard of him. I didn't understand the degree of politics and how, how much I was up against with these guys. But by the fall of 2004, when he finally got a judge to hear Harper's recantation, Gottlieb knew just how long his odds were. I was always apprehensive and understood that politics were at play and justice would be subordinate to relationships. I knew there was absolutely no way that any judge in his right mind would rule against Billy and Mike and Chris. I, I knew that was never in a million years would that happen. Gottlieb and a team of attorneys put on the best case they could. They deposed Mike Bridges, Jim Christopher, and Billy Wilkins. The judge heard from Wakefield's attorney, Buddy Parnell, and eventually Wyatt Earp Harper, repeating what he'd been saying for the past three years. We went to the motel. You know, they take you to the motel so you could be with your girl. All this kind of good treatment and everything until the time when it came for me to go to court. When that time came, you know, he sat there in front of me just like you were sitting right now, you know, making sure that I say everything that was told to me to say. And from that point on, I did what I was supposed to do. And that's the last time I seen Wakefield in the courtroom. That was the first time I ever seen him in my life. It was the last time I ever seen him. But five months later, Judge Jim Brogdon said Harper's recantation was not enough to give Wakefield a new trial. And then a month later, Judge Brogdon became general counsel for the public utility, Santee Cooper. And if you don't know that story, look it up. To most people, that would have been the moment to give up, to pack it in, to focus resources on a case or anything that wasn't a lost cause. But Laird and Claudia continued to work. So did attorney Eric Gottlieb. And Wakefield says, as his advocates continued their efforts on the ground, there was something else at work too. God promised me that I was gonna get out. This is a story Charles Wakefield Jr. has told me many times. A traveling preacher from Michigan visiting his prison and telling him he would go free. And not long after, a woman Wakefield believes to be a prophet who told him he would get out of prison. And God confirmed it at that point. And I was telling people that I was gonna get out. So many other people had lost hope that Wakefield would ever see the light of day. But Wakefield wasn't relying on hope. Wakefield was relying on faith. Thank you.
It was the beginning of 2010. At the time, you could tell like the world had lost its mind. Barack Obama had just finished his first year as president. The Tea Party movement was shaking American politics. Sarah Palin and Glenn Beck were massive stars. Tiger Woods had just wrecked his car and turned his life inside out. And South Carolina Congressman Joe Wilson had just become internationally famous for standing up during a joint session of Congress and yelling to President Obama, you lie. It felt like nobody gave a shit about truth anymore, or at least that's where it was trending. Now, I had no idea. I don't think anyone could have predicted, you know, where we are today. But you could still feel that it was kind of trending in that direction. So I, I felt like this was this was it. This was the last push. And if, if I couldn't get it done, then it, it was over. Nine years after he'd helped convince the South Carolina Parole Board to free Charles Wakefield Jr. and watched helplessly as the board fumbled and overturned its own decision, Eric Gottlieb threw one last Hail Mary, going one last time before the parole board. The one thing I had working for me in my favor was, was truth. That's all I had to hang my hat on. I didn't have any political connections. I didn't have any power. I didn't have any strings to pull. I only had truth. He also had the family of Frank and Rufus Looper working alongside him. They visited South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford, who listened to them and told them they had a case worth hearing. And then the whole team made a decision to schedule another meeting, one you might not expect. It was really a cold day, and I was sitting in the car, and I got there real early, and I was waiting. That is Adele McCauley, Frank Looper's cousin, Rufus Looper's niece, remembering parking alongside Greenville's Reedy River Falls. He was at the railing that looks over the falls, and there was all this steam rising up. She watched a man who looked to her like one-time prosecutor, Billy Wilkins. I could see his silhouette and I just imagined he must be, in his mind, kind of reliving what really happened and what do I want to say and what do I not want to say. Minutes later, she stood in Billy Wilkins' office. And the first words out of his mouth were something to the effect of, now you know this is a settled case. He was found guilty. Adele faced Wilkins and told him why she'd come. That's why I'm here, because I feel like I somehow need your blessing he said, well, what do you want out of all this? I said, all I want is to give Charles a fair shot at having a life. Adele remembers Wilkins seeming rushed, saying he had to catch a plane. So she got to the point. She wanted him to get the cops to back off the parole board. And I said, you are well aware that there are still questions about this case. Could we just give him a chance? Could we just give him a shot at it? Adele said the meeting was almost immediately finished. But later that day, something happened. My cell phone rang, and it was Billy Wilkins. He said, listen, I talked to Jim Christopher. He said he would stay away from the hearing. 
but I have to ask you to do one thing. And I said, what's that? He says, don't insinuate in any way that there was some error in the prosecution. I said, no problem. No problem, she'd said. But when Adele told me this story, she'd just spent a couple of hours talking about just how terrible she believed the prosecution was. I couldn't help but ask, how do you think Billy Wilkins would feel about what you're saying? He probably won't like it. I don't know what he'll say. I don't know, Kenny, is there anything he can say? He's a defense attorney now. So what would Billy Wilkins say? I don't think he'd like it worth a damn, but I don't think that there's a whole lot he can do about it. I asked Wilkins about it later, and he remembered the story this way. I did have a conversation with Christopher. I, it wasn't what I asked him to do. I asked him, is he going to do it? And he said, no, he wouldn't. And I said, well, you're doing the right thing to let the system work. I did not believe that I should be down there protesting. I didn't believe police officers should be. This is a matter of appearance. I mean, we do our job and that's it. And so, in January of 2010, all of Wakefield's supporters, Eric Gottlieb and a videographer, packed up and headed to Columbia. Somebody asked Wakefield what he wanted to do if he got out of prison. His wants were simple. He wanted to watch Sports Center and eat a piece of lemon pound cake. In front of the parole board, they all stated their case and waited in a side room for the decision. They needed five yes votes for Wakefield to get parole. Moments later, a woman came out and gave them the news. I was actually completely disillusioned. She said we lost four to two. We got only two votes and four people voted to deny. And I thought, I, I, that's it. I can't do more than I did today, and I only got two votes. It, it, it's truly hopeless. It's over. The legal aspects of this pursuit are, are done, effective today. Everyone went their own way. Gottlieb went to his hotel with his videographer, who said he had seen something that Gottlieb hadn't. When the board voted, their votes came up as green lights or red lights. He was in back of the panel where all the, the green and red lights come up. And he said, Eric, no, it wasn't. I, I, I'm almost certain you got four votes. So he went back and he checked the tape. And sure enough, it was four in favor of parole and two against. Charles Wakefield Jr. needed five votes. But instead of getting just two, he'd gotten four. Just one short of freedom. And... One of the board members, one who had voted for Wakefield in the past, was absent that day. So had he been there, it would have been 5-2 and he would have been paroled. So I just couldn't believe it. And there was no way in hell I was going to not kick and scream to try to, to get another crack at it. Gottlieb jumped back in his car and rushed back to the parole board office. Only to find the board behind closed doors. The woman at the front told him, sorry, but you're too late. Still imagining four green lights that could have been five, Gottlieb was a mess. 
and he had a door between him and the parole board. I can't walk out of here. This, this guy's been in prison for, for 35 years for something he didn't do. I, I, I have to leave it all out there. This is it. I have to go in there, whether you let me go in there or not. I, I am going to go in there. So please don't make me do this. The woman at the front was sympathetic, but she couldn't help. And she told Gottlieb if he barged in, it could cost him his law license. I said, I, I don't want my license if, if this is what it, is, it has to be like. So I said, look, you've always been good to me. You've, you've always treated me exceptionally well. Why don't we do this? You help me get before the board so that I could take one more crack at this. And I will consent to being arrested. Call it an act of civil disobedience. I will consent to being arrested. So that way I'm not putting you in a difficult situation. I'm not being disruptive. But at the same time, I get what I, I have to get, which is an audience before the board. Gottlieb got in. He doesn't even remember his words, only that he threw every possible argument he could at the board. And when he walked out, he found people waiting for him. Sled agents with guns. Sure enough, there were, I guess sled is in the building downstairs. And there were like six brawny guys wearing polo shirts that were like two sizes too small for their muscles with guns standing there waiting for me. And Miss Bright said, it's all right, it's all right, it won't be necessary. Thank you, gentlemen. Gottlieb officially filed for a rehearing, and the board said yes. Come back in March. And in the meantime, Mike Bridges, the single most vocal Wakefield opponent, died. In March of 2010, Wakefield's team had grown, and it believed its chances were the best they'd ever been, until they showed up and realized they would be stating their case to only five board members. Eric came to see me, and we were sitting down talking about it. He said there was only be, gonna be five members at the hearing the next day. He wanted to postpone it. And I had a decision to make go forward with less than seven and be forced to basically run the table. You need five votes for parole. And if there's only five people present, that means you can't have anybody vote against you. Wakefield told his attorney he had faith. We was talking about the vote. And I was telling him, I said, the Lord say that it's going to be six votes. He said, why you didn't ask for seven? He said, I had a dream last night. In the dream, God spoke to me, and he said, you're going to get six votes voting for parole, so I know it's going to happen, so yes, I want to go forward. And I had to tell him, sorry, Charles, but I don't, I don't think that was God talking to you because there's only going to be five board members present at the hearing tomorrow. What's more, Gottlieb knew that a key board member who would likely vote for Wakefield was missing. How could Gottlieb possibly allow Wakefield to use his last chance when he would need every board member present 
to say yes. I told him God gave me that day and that we was going to go see what was going to happen. And that was crazy, crazy decision to make. That was just almost reckless. We had no wiggle room. We couldn't lose one vote. We had to get all five of them to vote for parole. As Gottlieb told this story, he paused, as if considering whether he really wanted to tell the rest. And then he spoke again. I am an atheist. I have never believed in God in my whole life. He didn't know how to pray, so his wife took his hands and prayed with him. I prayed on that decision. I I asked my wife to do it for me because I felt actually like it would be insulting to a higher being if I, of all people, were to pray. So I asked her to do it for me, with me, so that I, I would make the right decision. And so, an atheist who had just prayed and a condemned man who had lived took their shot. Bring in case number 75, please. Charles Wakefield, Jr. Five board members who all had to vote yes. Uh, Please state your name for the record. Uh, Charles Wakefield, Jr. Those board members listened as Wakefield supporters spoke. His sister, Vanessa. We just would like to have an opportunity to reunite our family. Frank Looper's cousin, Adele McCauley. We unanimously would like to see Charles granted parole. Her mother, Julia. I would appreciate it if you would parole Mr. Wakefield. Her son, Scott. I would like to ask this board to grant parole for Mr. Wakefield. A former state legislator. He's got a proven track record of of being a good person. I don't think he's a danger uh, to himself or to anybody else. And a retired Greenville County deputy reading a statement on behalf of Frank Looper's partner, Miles Cheatham. Something good must come after all this tragedy. On behalf of all those who knew and loved Frank, I respectfully ask that you honor both Frank and Frank's family by granting their request for parole today. Sincerely, Miles Cheatham. And then, Eric Gottlieb himself, speaking on behalf of the Looper family. We support parole in this matter because we feel it is our obligation as Christians. But we cannot fulfill that obligation until you go ahead and parole this man. Otherwise, we will have to come before the board every other year and relive all the pain over and over again without end. Desperately want to put this matter to rest once and for all, but we cannot do that without you. Please help this family finally find peace by granting this request for parole. After that, Wakefield supporters listened as the board began to deliberate. And it sounded promising. When the victims speak, when the victims' family speak as they have, Today, that's, that's very powerful to me. But it became clear very quickly. One of the five board members was on the fence. Not, um, um... Four votes seemed like sure things. But one board member looked as though he wasn't going to press the green button. And that is when something sort of amazing happened. What I would propose is we hold a final vote in abeyance until we have full information to include the results of a psychological evaluation. The four yes votes convinced the man on the fence to wait, effectively buying time until the other board members could be there. The guys who wanted to see parole began almost like negotiating and saying, okay, well, well why, don't, why don't we do this? Why don't we um, order a psychological evaluation? Why don't we adjourn, do a little more research. They sort of read the room and kind of saw that they didn't have all five, so they took it upon themselves to hit pause. And so, everybody went home and waited. 
After 35 years, Charles Wakefield Jr. had grown used to waiting. After nearly 10 years, so had Eric, Claudia, Laird, and the Looper family. So many times, good news had had a way of turning bad. I was holding my breath because so many times before, you know, somebody made a phone call, like the phone call you got. Somebody did something to throw a monkey wrench into the machinery. The decision wouldn't come fast, so they all went their separate ways. Gottlieb was back in New York and remembers exactly where he was when the email hit his phone. I remember I was walking down 15th Street to go to work, looking at my email, waiting anxiously, and uh, it, it came in that, that they had granted it. For the third time in 13 years, the parole board had made the decision. But Charles Wakefield Jr. did not get five votes. The one holdout had joined. Uh, the full board of seven were present, and they voted to parole Charles by a vote of six to one. Six to one. Six votes. Just as it was in Charles' dream. Just as it was, Charles said, when God spoke to him. Eric scrambled from New York. Claudia flew in from Colorado. Together, they watched Wakefield walk out of prison, carrying a portfolio full of his paintings and a paper that said he was free. Adele and Julia McCauley were waiting, too, with a lemon pound cake. stepped outside the, the prison, that changed everything because they couldn't just take it away from him without, without a reason at that point. Eric Gottlieb started off wanting to make a documentary and instead made a friend, one he helped set free. And in the process, Gottlieb says, he set himself free too. I was finally free to, to let go of this obsession that had consumed me night and day for the better part of 10 years. I felt like, you know, now I can, you know, die in peace. I felt like I, I don't have to obsess on this. I don't have to find a way to keep it going anymore. I finally can let go. When Charles Wakefield Jr. walked out of prison, he had missed his dad's funeral by less than a year. And so he started collecting what mementos he could, an obituary, a faded photo, and whatever happy memories he could. When it started getting to be like fall, we would go take the dogs out in the woods. You sort of let them practice. They spook the rabbits and make them run out of their little hiding place. Wakefield never hunted, but he loved the dogs. I love animals, especially uh, German Shepherds, because I had uh, two German Shepherds. German Shepherds are very devoted animals and loyal. I value loyalty. Wakefield was free from prison, but his dad was gone. The rest of his family was either in Florida, where he couldn't go, or Greenville, where he didn't feel comfortable or in emergencies didn't have the time to ask a parole officer, like when his 92-year-old stepmother ended up in the hospital. He couldn't just come to the hospital, show up like we could, to be there beside Mama, to be there with her. 
and that bothers him. He can't just come to family gatherings whenever he gets ready. He can't do it. He has to ask for permission. That's not total freedom. And when he did get back to Greenville, his sister knew he was never comfortable. We don't know who's here, who's listening, who's looking out, who still has their eye on him. You never know when you'll be confronted and they, they ask you for your ID and figure out, you know, oh, by the way, you know, this is, this is Charles Wakefield. This is attorney and son of the trial judge, Frank Epps Jr. Obviously, Charles now has to be better than everybody else, not just live a good, decent life, but be better than everybody else. There's very few officers that would remember anything about this matter except for retired officers. At the same time, if Charles's instinct tells him he don't need to be here at night, I wouldn't blame him a bit. And so, ask Wakefield and the people who support him what his freedom means to him. They'll all ask, well, just what do you consider freedom? Free? Does that mean you can vote? No. <laughs> Does that mean you can go out and see Laird and Claudia? Or if you want to go see your mom down in Greenville? At 66 years old, Charles Wakefield Jr. is effectively broke, despite the fact he works 40 hours a week. He's not a young man. He came out of prison with health issues. And he has no savings and no way really to get along. I mean, basically, he's going to have to work until he drops in order to put food on his table. Wakefield got pneumonia and a $6,000 hospital bill. Cataract surgery, another bill. The heater in his home, the house that Laird bought for him, died in the dead of winter. And Wakefield didn't have the thousands of dollars he needed for a new one. You basically are facing a lifetime of work. I mean, I don't care how old he becomes. He can't afford not to work. As you get older, you know, your knees feel a little this way and that way, and you're not as strong, and you, you huff a little bit when you're at the top of the stairs. And to, you know, then do the 40 hours a week, on and on and on, and that's all you see. It doesn't, doesn't have an end. People would say, chin up. You're not in prison. Forget the past. You're free. It may be in the past to them, but for him, he lost 35 years of his life. And still, people assume that he did something that he didn't. It's not okay. It's not going to be okay until the truth comes out. And he can really be free. Wakefield's brand of freedom is the kind of freedom in which the law calls you a freed murderer. Which, for Wakefield, is barely freedom at all. To Charles, it's extremely important to have the truth get out and to have the satisfaction of being declared innocent. Wakefield's freedom comes with the watchful eye of a parole officer and knowing any misstep could land him back in prison if he goes to a party. We know everybody's drinking, but I don't drink. He avoids letting anyone, even a friend offering a ride, having control over where he goes. He has a rule. Not to be in a position where other people can dictate what happens to you. Having the freedom to leave when I feel like, okay, I got to get back to my safe space. And after decades of having no one near him to love, dating is one of the hardest things to manage. If Wakefield finds a woman who believes in his innocence, he still has a hard time trusting her to not tell some lie about him. If she would say that, then you got to prove that you didn't. Or you got to go through a process where it plays itself out. The ultimate result for me could be that I go back to prison and never get out. The result, Charles 
who lives in an 1,100 square foot home built in 1963, doesn't get out much. And I know a lot of times, you know, I'm, I'm home too much. Even though I do a lot of activities and stuff like that, I still feel like I'm, you know, home alone too much. To pass the time, he works, plays softball, and paints remarkable pieces of art. But not unlike prison, his life is lonesome. Several years after getting out, Wakefield picked out a dog and built with his own hands an elaborate doghouse. A nice doghouse, double wall insulated with a little porch on the doghouse. It would have been for a German shepherd, a loyal companion for those long days and nights as Wakefield worked toward complete freedom. But for reasons Wakefield has a hard time articulating, maybe that someday someone could come and take him back to prison and leave the dog alone. Wakefield never brought the German shepherd home. I had built the doghouse, but I didn't get the dog. Nearly a decade back, Charles Wakefield Jr. found a work ethic inside him. He taught himself to drive on hand-cut roads in the woods, fueled by a few bucks and gas money, and the kind of hope he knows as faith. The kind of hope, or faith, that affects people around him. Like Laird Carlson, who vows to include Wakefield in his will. It became a very nice uh, friendship and a, a long-term friendship, a, a lifetime. And Claudia Whitman, who even while recovering from cancer surgery, works tirelessly to help. I could never give up on Charles. He's just that kind of person. I don't think anybody could know him and give up on him. Those advocates and many others who found Charles over the past year are still working to make sure nothing sends Wakefield back to prison. And they work to make sure the information uncovered since this podcast began about potential new evidence in the case gets the attention it deserves. It absolutely blows my mind that a modern police station could get evidence like that and then supposedly lose it. Meanwhile, after working 40 hours a week, 66-year-old Charles Wakefield Jr. relies on the one thing that has helped him travel this far from hell. It's not his driver's license. I just kept on praying. I just kept on believing that there is justice for an innocent person. I just kept on believing that something, something right gotta come out of this. It's January 31st, 2020. Me forever to get the hang of opening this vault up. Exactly 45 years since someone shot Rufus and Frank Looper at their Pendleton Street garage. And I'm standing outside an ancient, hard-to-open vault. Just, just so it doesn't record the combination. No, I wouldn't do that. I'm standing not far from the place where the courthouse keeps that big book, where I first found Charles Wakefield Jr.'s name with the words, murder, etc. This is a safe room, secure room, where the exhibits are housed. I'm with a woman named Christy. My name is Christy Dyshenko. I am the administrative coordinator of the criminal records office. Her office makes sure all the court records, 
are in a place. They can easily find them. My goal is, and, and I'm sure it's the same goal um, from years gone by, is to have neat, orderly, and complete records. That's something I have really strived for since I've been here, especially when I became the manager. Modern record keeping is fairly cut and dry and computerized. But go back a few years, and the forecast sometimes gets cloudy. The further back you go, the more difficult it can be to interpret how they kept the records. <laughs> there have been a number of mysteries we had to try to solve because there were no notes. There was nothing to let us know um, what were they trying to do. One of those mysteries had Charles Wakefield Jr.'s name on it. I had never heard of Charles Wakefield. I had never heard of the Looper murders. I had never heard of this case, was not aware of it at all. I did not become aware of it until sometime around September of 2019. My supervisor actually came over looking for the Charles Wakefield exhibits. The court's records indicated the Wakefield trial exhibits should have been at the courthouse. Exhibits like the bullets that killed the Loopers and Charles Wakefield's clothes. The kinds of things police could test with new DNA technology or if a potential murder weapon turned up. Really bothered me that we could not find those exhibits, especially since there was no documentation that I could find that would indicate they had been destroyed. So my supervisor tasked me with finding the exhibits or finding out what happened to them. For the next four months, Christy and her colleagues searched. There was a lot of things that had gone on between Mr. Wakefield's trial and the present. I knew it was possible we might never find out what happened to them. She talked to employees, former employees, anyone she could find who might have some information. One of those people had a vague memory. So she did remember, though, that they were in a very tattered brown paper bag. She just was, was kind of beating herself up because she felt like, I know I remember seeing this. So we went and looked, um, but nothing looked familiar at all to her. In January of 2020, Christy had not given up. So I grabbed a coworker and we went and we thought we're gonna look again. So to the right was a stack of boxes of current day exhibits, all well-labeled. Uh, we, we knew what those were. To the left were several boxes of exhibits that the retention period had expired. So they were up to be destroyed. And then in the middle, there was two brown boxes. There was a blue and white box with a smaller box on top. It was right there on top of the two brown boxes. Christy's colleague picked up the one on top. Christy grabbed the other one and opened it up. And my eye immediately went to an evidence property tag. And at that point, I saw the words left front of Looper's garage. And I knew we'd found what we were looking for. <laughs> we turned that box around and there was a yellow label that said Charles Wakefield. <laughs> when I saw Looper's garage on that evidence tag, it was like time stood still for just a minute. <laughs> it was just uh, amazing. On January 31st, I stood with Christy as she methodically opened the box and carefully laid out its contents. Defendant's Exhibit 2. It's just a like a brown paper shopping bag type thing. Bilo. <laughs> Bilo grocery store. It's got a spirit of 76 emblem on it. It's the bicentennial. That's there right. There you yeah. go. The bicentennial commemorative Bilo bag. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And inside the bag, Charles Wakefield Jr.'s clothes from January 31st, 1975 the same pants and shoes he wore in his booking photo. And then... This is the one that they took from Lieutenant Frank. Three sealed plastic canisters. And then this is the one they took from Rufus. Each one with a lead slug inside. These are the bullets. Wow. 
rather significant considering the day it is today yeah, that I mean, we're looking at this today. Yeah, we're standing here on January 31st and wow, yeah. that's, uh, that's something else. For the courthouse, it was a clerical mystery, a box turned around the wrong way, and some dedicated employees not giving up. Meanwhile, Charles Wakefield Jr. believes, as he had for two decades, God is keeping his promise. As a child, Charles Wakefield Jr. had dreams, and in those dreams, he saw God. Even then, though, he knew nothing of faith, and it's likely he didn't until he was in a cell, alone. It was almost like I didn't have anything or anybody there but me and my prayers. It took years before Wakefield heard a promise, one that moved him to something closer to what he had called faith. All I had was that relationship with God. It became closer and stronger and stronger and more personal. And when he had enough room in the prison yard, he would run as if he were free. And as he ran, he sang. The children of Israel, they were in captivity. But even though they were in captivity, they would sing the songs of Zion. And they would sing joyous songs, but they were in captivity. And I remember when I was in captivity and I would sing certain songs, I would get to the point where I would feel the presence of God because that was all I had. And that's how I made it. Wakefield's last and most successful attorney was an atheist. Wakefield's closest friends live nearly 2,000 miles away from him. He has no money. He's afraid of his hometown and he believes he's still living out a wrong that's not been made right. And yet, he feels compelled to offer the people around him a love and grace he's found in his faith. I'm not responsible for how people treat me, but I am responsible for how I treat people. Even people that may not treat me as they should, I'm still responsible for how I treat people. God has truly taken care of me. He feels that every day as new attorneys take up his case and new advocates offer their help. And he prays for truth in whatever form it comes. I'm not the author of revenge. God is. If God decides that it's going to be a resolution to this, if God decides that somebody should pay for what has happened to me, then that's going to be God. That's not going to be me. And yet, for all the peace Charles Wakefield Jr. has found, his soul is still restless, and his spirit is still afraid. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. A long way. Oh, you 
from home. On that one day, Wakefield sat and listened to his sister sing with an old family friend. Wakefield looked different than any other day I'd seen him. All day, he'd seemed weary, with tears in his eyes and his hands clutched, lost in thought and somewhere else, almost as if he were about to break. They got an old saying that God won't put no more on you than you can bear. I often wonder how much can I truly bear. But as the singing continued and he rocked forward and back, Wakefield revealed a part of himself that made it clear just how much he believed the promise he said God made to him. And in doing so, Wakefield revealed why a thing he once said has come to define almost everything about who he is today. How he's been able to live through terrible accusations, through death row, and life behind the wall. How he's walked through puddles of blood, endured broken promises, and steeled himself against the loss of almost everything in his life. How he's lived a free man's life in captivity, and a captive's life in freedom and done it all with the kind of grace everyone who meets him calls. Nothing short of amazing. Wakefield did it all because not only does he believe God made him a promise that he would be free, but because Wakefield himself made a promise too. No matter how many lies he believes he's endured, or how many people forgot promises they'd made, or how many times someone else destroyed the promise of freedom, Charles Wakefield Jr. is a man who believes in the truth. He's a man who believes in grace. He's a man who believes in promises, and he believes in keeping them. I made a promise. I made a promise to God. I promised God that I wasn't going to stop until he tell me to stop. I wasn't going to stop trying to prove my innocence. I didn't commit this crime. Everybody know that I didn't commit this crime. I'm going to do whatever it is I got to do. I'll stop pursuing it when God tell me to stop.
That is Charles Wakefield Jr.'s story so far. And that's the final full episode of Murder, Etc. So far. I say it that way because the unexpected developments at the end of 2019 have kicked off a story that's happening now in 2020. The FBI is now looking at the Looper murders. The state police are now looking at the Greenville City Police. And Wakefield's new team of attorneys is looking at everything and everyone for answers. So, there will be more to report in the coming months. If you want to hear it all, keep your subscription to Murder Etc. active. And when updates come, you'll be able to get them here. And if you'd like to give us some cash to help fund the ongoing effort, you can do so at paypal.me slash murderetc or to the Venmo account, murderetc. I've had a lot of people ask me, outside of following what happens in the ongoing investigations, what's next for Murder Etc.? And for that, I don't have a quick answer. Over the course of reporting on this podcast, I've run across more stories than I could ever report. And there's still so much more we could tell about Bub Skelton, Luke Cannon, the Dawson Gang, and all the absolutely crazy organized crime stories Greenville has endured over the years. So we have some choices to make. And at some point after releasing this episode, I'll write something on our website about how we're planning for what's next. That's also where you will find all kinds of information about this podcast, including a lot of stuff we'll add in the weeks and months after we put out this last episode. That website is murderetcpodcast.com. And before we sign off, for now, we owe a lot of people a lot of thanks. This is going to take a bit, but it's important. Foremost, thank you to Charles Wakefield Jr., the Wakefield family, and all of the Looper family for being courageous enough to share your stories with us. And thank you to everyone who sat for interviews or hours-long phone calls over the years. If I tried to name all of you, this episode would last for another hour, because between all the on-the-record and off-the-record discussions, the number of people is literally in the hundreds. Thanks to all of the sources who I promised to not ever name, so I won't do it here either, but you know who you are, and thank you. Thank you to Claudia Whitman and Laird Carlson for their support and trust, and Eric Gottlieb for sharing so much with me, including his research and his footage from the documentary he set out to produce. It all added a lot to this podcast in amazing ways. Thank you to Vanessa McKinney and the Reverend Harry Mansell, for lending their voices to the song in this episode and in episode four, Motherless Child. Thank you to Andy Etheridge for your heart, spirit, insatiable appetite for the truth, and driving me everywhere like it was your job. Thank you to Leonard Brown Jr. for spending countless hours converting your old man's tapes to digital. Andy and Leonard also provided a ton of research help, as did Joanne Whitaker, Lynn West, and Danette Green. It's amazing what you can figure out when you have more than one person digging. It's also amazing what kind of friendships you can end up making while you dig. Thanks to Christy Smith-Palmer for marketing advice and events planning, and to Martin Minigrode for legal counsel and friendship for nearly three decades. There were a lot of people in government positions who helped, but a few went above and beyond without any complaint. So thanks to Christy Dyashenko, Ryan Flood, Donnie Porter, and Jenny Moran for doing your job so well. Thanks to writer Terry Barr, to Andrew Brokos and Nate Mavis of Thinking Poker, Sean Dillon of Behind the Mic, 
Chuck Reese and everyone at the Bitter Southern, as well as all of you at the Greenville News, the Greenville Journal, WYFF, WSPA, and Fox Carolina, who helped spread the word about this story. Many thanks to Easley's Blue Voodoo Grill, John Jeter, Chris Hare, Vera Lopez, and everyone at the Emerus Foundation, as well as Stephanie Holden at the Pickens County Library System. Huge thanks to Shannon Wilbanks and Joe Irwin at Greenville's Endeavor for all of their support along the way. We could not have done half of what we did without those of you who put up your own money to help us recoup some of our costs, especially you folks and amateurs, etc. a group named by a listener and now friend, Tim Joner. I'd love to be able to thank all of you who gave your money to help this show, but since that would also take a very long time, a special thank you to those who went above and beyond in their dedication to us. Dave Bear and Mikiko Harunari, Kristen Beer, Larry Carpenter, Adrian Carter, Andrea Durham, David Garrett, Lee Jones, Maureen McCarthy, Paul McGuire, April Nassie, Lizzie and Mary Jane Parnell, Jody Parker, Eric Ramsey, Shirley Rosario, and Charles Stillman. Thanks very much to all of you. Thanks to Gordon Dill, Andrew Moxon, Ann Wheaton, and Will Wheaton for selflessly using your big platforms to champion the work here. To Scott Goodall, Stephen Bartley, and all my friends and colleagues at Poker Stars who had my back over the last year. And to Gary Gates and Shelley Suttles, who offered very early encouragement that proved absolutely invaluable over the last year. As well as my friends G-Rob, John, and Jeff, who I've barely seen in a year and who I know will be there tomorrow, both for me and for what John, as only he can, dubbed margaritas, etc. Finally, some thanks to the people without whom none of this would have ever happened. Howard Swains, my longtime friend, who is also a relentlessly innovative journalist and the very first person to steer me in the right direction. Kate Chapman and R.J. Willis for serving as a volunteer editorial board, musical consultants, and sometimes therapists. Joanne, Jeff, Cindy, Ben, and Jake Willis for their unconditional belief and support. And to my old man, John Willis, who I really wish had been around to hear all this. And if anybody at all deserves thanks now, it's the three people who gave up a year of their lives without getting any of the credit for all they did. Dylan and Graham Willis, who helped with both music and research, and gave up their dad for a year because they believed in telling this story all the way. And Michelle Willis, who, if I let her edit this part, she would absolutely cut it out. She taught me just about everything I know about broadcast writing and spent weeks of her life editing scripts, listening to rough cuts, and talking me through some long nights of hard decisions. More than anyone, she made this podcast happen, and somehow managed to still love me in the end. I could go on, but if I do, she will yell at me for running too long. So, thanks to everyone who listened to Murder, etc., rated it and reviewed it, and shared it with your friends. I hope, if anything, you now know things other people don't know and that you'll share them with as many people as you can. For the first time since episode one, I have no idea what's coming next. But when it does, I hope you'll come back for whatever is coming up on Murder, Etc. Oh,